Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 136, October 23rd to October 29th, 1863. Last week, we closed the book on both William Rosecrans and his capacity as commander of the Army of the Cumberland, as well as the Bristow Station Campaign. We spent some time in Florida, always lovely this time of year, and we had some small skirmishes in North Carolina, indicative of the kind of actions we see in some of the lesser theaters of the war. This week, we need to spend some time in the Golden Boot, Arkansas, and Louisiana before we shift back to Tennessee. First, though, let's talk about sanitary fares. Of course, before we do that, we need to talk about our Patreon content. We had... We had a posting of a memoir, and that was going to be talking all about the Michigan Brigade and its service during the war, and it's especially relevant, not only because it's cavalry, and we haven't really done a whole lot of cavalry memoirs or talking about cavalry in general. It's also important because they're going to see the majority of their service here in the back end of the war, so that gives you a better idea of the cavalry actions in the East moving forward, especially we had Gettysburg not too long ago. So if that sounds like something that would interest you, then there is a link to the Patreon in the show description. Of course, the proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. Next month, we'll be going back to a picture slideshow, and that's going to be from Perryville. So there will be some pictures posted, and I know it's not quite lining up the way we wanted it to here. Perryville, of course, 1862, and it would be nice if it was in October, but I think just one month removed. Uh, it is a very picturesque battlefield, so there are some very nice shots from there. So we'll be talking about that. That's going to be next month here in November. And again, if that sounds like something that would interest you, there is a link in the show description. On October 27th, 1863, we have the first sanitary fair in Chicago known as the Great Northwestern Sanitary Fair. Now, what you may be asking is a sanitary fair. Well, it is certainly not a fair in which all the rides revolve around hand sanitizer, an amusing thought I had when I put them on the schedule to talk about them. They are, of course, fundraising events to get money for the U.S. Sanitary Commission. In a previous episode, we have talked about the U.S. Sanitary Commission, notably in connection with nurses, including Mary Ann Bickerdyke. Funding would be necessary to deal with wounded soldiers. And we have an ad that actually advertises the event in the local paper. The Great Northwestern Fair at Chicago, for the benefit of the Sanitary Commission, is attracting the interested attention of loyal citizens of all the northwestern states. Nearly every city in those states will send its contributions, while many of the cities of the East are doing the same with a degree of munificence that is princely. A collection of articles of immense value and almost endless variety, from a pincushion to a steam engine or a threshing machine, will be the result, the proceeds of which we hope will amply replenish the checker of the commission and send it on another career of months of successful administration to the wants of our soldiers in the field. Springfield has not been either uninterested or idle, as will be seen by a list of articles which the figures of her loyal women have prepared for the occasion. 
The fair will open tomorrow and will continue through two weeks. Major Sherman of Chicago has issued a proclamation requesting that all the business houses in the city be closed in honor of its inauguration. During the next two weeks, Chicago will be visited by thousands from all parts of the Northwest. For the information of those who may go from this section, we published the following program prepared by the Executive Committee. The fair will be opened on Tuesday, October 27th. Tickets of admission, 25 cents. Season tickets, $1. The ticket admits to Bryan Hall, the supervisor's room in the courthouse, and the hall for manufactured articles, now in the process of erection in the rear of Bryan Hall. Tickets of admission to the art gallery in the theater building, 25 cents. Season tickets, $1. So that gives us a good idea of, it might seem kind of crazy to have a season pass. I don't know if any of you are playgoers out there, season pass to uh, play for a dollar. That seems like a pretty nice deal or a similar kind of event, but it gives us idea of the prices that they're charging and, and kind of a little bit about the attractions in which they are presenting that people can go see. Between October and November, the fair would gain some $80,000. Those who paid admission were treated to various forms of entertainment as well as lectures. I have seen in some other fairs the auction of captured Confederate articles, like personal belongings of Jefferson Davis. This was important not only for raising money to help soldiers, but it was also important for the women who helped to organize and plan the event. This was definitely giving them a sense of real contribution to the war effort. The Chicago Fair would be an example for future fairs popping up throughout the North, once again aided by local groups of women in terms of organization and promotion. This is a great point to make when regarding events like these, or in the South, there are certainly more violent protests being organized. While women's suffrage does not come for many years afterward, we see the rumblings of a shift in the society of America, both North and South. With conscription, women were forced to deal with the government and men holding roles of authority. North and South, this had been the prerogative of men, but with the men at war, this would start to change things. While the Civil War is often labeled as having the biggest impact on slavery, there should be no debate about that. We often overlook the smaller ripples that will eventually become larger down the road. So if you think about this, this makes sense, right? Especially if you are agriculture-based and your income, then a lot of both North and South, really, there are could be a lot of instances where women are forced to start running the household as their husbands, traditionally, they would have held that particular responsibility, so they're having to kind of shift focus. So you kind of see the wheels start to turn, uh, and they don't turn quite uh, as quickly, right? Because we, we know that it doesn't happen for quite some time in women's suffrage, um, but we start to see kind of a shift, right? And we saw this in other wartime theaters, right? Like for World War II especially, a lot of women go into the workplace, whereas that probably wasn't something they had done prior. So you kind of see in these extreme cases with war, Civil War, World War II, others, uh, we kind of see there can also be a societal kind of change as well, which is um, something we probably don't normally think about. On October 25th, we have action at Pine Bluff, Arkansas. 
Pine Bluff, in case anyone is unaware, sits on the Arkansas River a little south of Little Rock. Union troops had laid out various posts, like at Pine Bluff, so as to aid the Federal Army at Little Rock. Remember that supply issues had grounded previous campaigns to a halt in this region. It would be crucial to remain supplied if the Union troops were to make any headway further south or in support of potential operations in Louisiana, which we will talk about at the bottom half of the episode. John S. Marmaduke would seek to eliminate this for potential usage for such actions. Now, when I say that John Marmaduke and his cavalry are going to be involved, I think some of you may be thinking back to the track record he has already shown for independent actions. Moving into Missouri did not really go as planned. And his actions leading up to Little Rock, while not disastrous, facing very long odds indeed, they did not really go well either. But in October of 1863, his 2,000 troopers would be stacked against maybe over 1,000 2nd Kansas and 1st Indiana cavalrymen, along with some militia. While not overwhelming numbers, Marmaduke hoped to have the element of surprise, hitting the town from multiple directions. In the morning of the 25th, a patrol would encounter Marmaduke's men, thus at least giving some advance warning. The defenders of Pine Bluff would be greatly aided by formerly enslaved men from nearby contraband camps. Remember that Grant, amongst other generals, were advocates of establishing a network of these camps. Several places, we have already mentioned, have been sites. It's also interesting to see that we have an example of non-combatants playing such a role. In the summer, we had a string of actions that had welcomed Union-colored regiments into active parts of combat. The men from the camp would help to build cotton bale barricades, fetch water in the case of siege, and a handful would even join the fight. Marmaduke would burn some of the buildings of Pine Bluff as the Union forces settled into their defenses. The Confederates would duel with small arms as well as artillery, but it would be much like Springfield if you recall that action. Union defenders were in strong positions that would probably be costly to take, and Springfield had been a better scenario for the attackers. Having inflicted some damage and captured some of the men, women, and children of the contraband camp, the rebels would withdraw back into southern Arkansas. Marmaduke would write that the Federals fought like devils. Both sides would lose around 40 men in terms of casualties. Much like some of the other actions Marmaduke has been a part of, the two sides of the region will fall back into a relative status quo, the rebels in southern Arkansas and the Union troops in the more northern reaches. We need to take this week to take a look back in on what's going on at Chattanooga as well. When we last left off, Grant had been placed over not only his Army of Tennessee, but also the Army of the Cumberland and the Army of Ohio. As a result, Thomas had replaced Rosecrans, but personnel aside, the real issue was Braxton Bragg's army, which now put Chattanooga to a siege, albeit an incomplete one. Joe Wheeler had crossed the Tennessee and attacked federal supply trains heading for the beleaguered city across the Barrens. The cattle these drives produced would arrive emaciated at Chattanooga, causing a real problem. Wheeler's Hall in early October had produced the destruction of valuable supplies, but also showed how his men were disorderly, becoming drunk and exposing themselves to a Union counterattack led by McCook's Cavalry Brigade. 
With the river curving and encountering rapids, it would be difficult to supply via that way. Additionally, Confederates now held Lookout Mountain, a position they could use for plunging fire onto the boats. But Grant needed to see the supply line open, crossing the Barrens to get to the city in October and seeing firsthand the problem. Upon his arrival at Chattanooga, he would develop a plan. Despite an original cold reception from Thomas, Grant would keep the capable general in command of the Army of the Cumberland. Thomas, of course, is still wanting to be placed in true independent command and does not very much like Liss. The Virginian would have to wait to be out from under the thumb of the victor of Vicksburg, though, or his chief subordinate. You see, as the strategic situation stood, McPherson and Sherman were on the way with their corps, as well as Joe Hooker coming with the 11th and 12th Corps from the Army of the Potomac. Enough reinforcement to best the Confederates would be at hand, but Thomas and his supplies would need to be solved. Previously, Old Pap had told Grant he would hold the city until they are starved, but even for a butcher like Grant, this was deemed unnecessary. Army of the Cumberland Chief Engineer Baldy Smith would come up to use a plan from Brown's Ferry to transport supplies to the besieged. Once open, two rail lines would be able to get supply to the Army of the Cumberland. This would become known as the Cracker Line. Grant thought if he was able to do this, the campaign would essentially be over and Bragg would be forced to withdraw. Bragg, it should be said, is not performing well. Longstreet held the left flank, with another corps under Breckenridge in the center, and soon Hardy would form kind of a semicircle, occupying Missionary Ridge. It should also be pointed out that before Hardy, Pemberton was considered to be inserted as corps commander, something that would have definitely incited outright mutiny in the army, but displays Bragg's desperation for partisans at this point. We often talk about this in other situations, and certainly this is a very valid one where there is, in the rank and file, this perception of if you're a loser, if you're incompetent, if you lost this major city, then you shouldn't be able to serve anymore. We saw that in the Union Army a little bit with Irving McDowell. He's the big loser at First Manassas, even though it very well could have been Johnson and Beauregard who lose that one. And then there's whispers that he's a traitor. It doesn't help that Pemberton is also from the North. So that would not have been a good move for Bragg. And it's kind of surprising, actually, he doesn't go through with it because he's not really all that uh, competent when it comes to making those personnel decisions, uh, but he's able to avoid this one. Missionary Ridge was imposing, but as we will see, not impregnable. If Bragg had not been infighting with his subordinates, it might have been possible to assault Thomas while he was weak. He could have also moved into Tennessee proper, causing havoc for the Union armies. Both of these choices would be too bold for the Tar Heel General, and so they would sit for the time being, trying to starve out Thomas. Now, it's also, you can also point out that there were pretty strong defenses around Chattanooga, so even a supply-deficient army might have been able to at least inflict pretty heavy casualties if he was going to try to assault that position. So that's another thing we can kind of point out, but obviously, whatever he needed to do, he needed to do it fairly quickly, and he just didn't end up doing that. 
It would be necessary for the Cracker Line's survival to first take control of Lookout Valley, which included Kelly's Ferry and Brown's Ferry. Smith's route would be useful for steamboats to land supplies, use a road in the valley to shield from Lookout Mountain, and thus also be protected from cavalry. So a raid like Wheeler's, which was pulled off earlier in the month, would not be on the table. Joe Hooker with Howard's Corps and Geary of Slocum's command would be used to exploit this area. In addition, Grant would send John Palmer's division to act in support and William Hazen's brigade to take Brown's Ferry. So lax had the two sides become at this state of the siege that Grant along with his staff were able to sit in plain sight of the ferry and observe while making their preparations. While we're on the subject of Grant as well, I do want to also mention that there is some evidence that Rosecrans was already developing this plan to open up a cracker line. We know Baldy Smith was the chief engineer for the Army of the Cumberland, so that would kind of make sense. Um, but kind of in the post-war narrative, it's sort of written by the victors. It's written by the individuals who end up being successful as well in the terms of Grant. And you know, Grant really doesn't want to give a whole lot of credit to Rosecrans. And you know, maybe there was some tweaking of the plan, perhaps, that happens. But obviously... It's not just Grant who's coming up with it, and there is some evidence that maybe this would have happened even without Grant, which is an intriguing thought, and it kind of makes sense to a guy like Rosecrans that we know was a pretty good strategist, right? Like, he understood how to conduct a campaign, and maybe he had come up with this plan, you know, he's sort of portrayed as a broken man and completely... Uh, ineffective after Chickamauga, and there probably would have been some hits to his confidence. However, it's probably not the case that he was just kind of sitting and moping around uh, after that action. So we should also, you know, think about that, and it's an intriguing thought. On October 27th, with Hooker's men already on their way, Hazen's brigade floated down the river on pontoons. Smith was given overall command of the operation, having used a sawmill in the city for construction of the key bridge that needed to be assembled at the ferry. Hazen easily dispatched the pickets and captured Brown's Ferry. His men would set up defensively. Longstreet had neglected to put a large force in Lookout Valley and could have used the weight of his command to drive away Hazen, but only two regiments from Law's Alabama Brigade attacked the Federals. William C. Oates, the opponent of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain at Little Round Top, would be wounded, struck in the thigh during the most coordinated of these attempts, but the Confederates would be scattered. It did not help that only two of the five regiments participated in these attacks, the three remaining Alabama regiments not in a position to support. Longstreet would resolve to try again. He would use Hood's division to try to spring a trap on Hooker. Hooker had advanced the 11th Corps to Brown's Ferry, but left behind John White Geary's division of the 12th Corps at Wahatchee, which was a station on the Trenton Branch Railroad, where it met with the Chattanooga and Nashville Railroad. From Kelly's Ferry, the route would lead through wooded terrain, making its way around Raccoon Mountain and to Brown's, where the supplies would make its way across Moccasin Bend to the city. Moccasin Bend is a particularly unique landmark at Chattanooga, much like Lookout Mountain and I will try to include a picture if I can. So far, only sharpshooters had contested the Union advance, but with Geary isolated, Longstreet figured it was time to strike. 
using a night assault, the brigade under Micah Jenkins will be utilized in neutralizing the 12th Corps men. Robertson and the Texans, as well as Laws Alabama, would block the 11th Corps from coming to the rescue with Benning in reserve. It should be noted that Jenkins had overall command of the division, Hood, of course, being wounded at Chickamauga. Hooker was irresponsible in setting up Geary three miles from his main body, but Geary and his 12th Corps troops were no strangers to being isolated and thus set up in a V formation. Hindering the Confederates would be Lookout Creek, which was not easily fordable and had one crossing point in which they could utilize, thus making the protection of their withdrawal route imperative. A delay in the opening attack would prove crucial, Geary ready to meet the assault. Still, the fighting was fierce. George Sears Green would be wounded, and Geary's own son, a lieutenant of artillery, would be killed. Green actually was wounded fairly severely, getting hit in the face. Both sides would write about how difficult the night fighting was, with blue and gray using muzzle flashes to respond. Mules did prevent the South Carolina regiments from flanking the enemy and getting into the supply of the division, which sparked the rumor that stampeding mules scared the rebels. Law and Robertson would hit the 11th Corps as they advanced down the road, Orland Smith's brigade turning to try to assault the enemy and likewise suffering heavy casualties. In the confusion of the early hours in battle, Hooker would turn to face the enemy and leave Geary isolated yet again. Smith's attacks would be uphill, at a site dubbed Smith's Hill now. Hector Tyndale's brigade, hustling around the position, would run into Confederates at a place that would be dubbed Tyndale Hill. Law, though, would believe that Jenkins' brigade was withdrawing and so would withdraw prematurely, which likewise forced their compatriots attacking Geary to retreat. Colonel John Bratton, a veteran since the Peninsula Campaign, having risen from the rank of private, would report that his pressure might have finally broken Geary. At any rate, Longstreet would be fairly mad at Law, who he had decided was not really fit to be commanding anymore, in conclusion he will have about Lafayette McClaws as well in the Knoxville Campaign. Law and Jenkins had a pre-existing rivalry, but it does not help Law's case that Jenkins was more favored by Longstreet. Destruction of Hooker and the Cracker Line could have been achieved on the 27th and 28th, but Longstreet showed the same lack of enthusiasm he had at Gettysburg. While not entirely his fault, one has to wonder if Hood was healthy, would things have been different? That is something that you can wonder pretty frequently when it comes to Longstreet is, what if Hood had been healthy? You know, we have two of the largest battles of the war in Gettysburg and Chickamauga where a healthy Hood might have been a difference maker on the battlefield because he was a very effectual combat commander, attacking commander, and Longstreet, who we often point out is not necessarily terrible when it comes to being an offensive general. He certainly lacks kind of the drive that Hood does. And Hood, if he had been healthy here, would things have been different? And it's really difficult to say because night fighting is always a difficult thing to do. It's not something that happens frequently during the Civil War, and oftentimes it gets confusing. We saw at Chickamauga how uh, we had casualties on both sides, unfortunate casualties because you're running into the enemy. And so maybe Hood might not have been able to help in this particular situation, but it is sort of an interesting thought. And that's another reason why I think we kind of label Hood into this kind of middle management category. When he gets elevated in command, he's not as effective. And when he does have somebody 
but like Longstreet, who is the the boss, so so to speak, and then you have him as being the primary subordinate. He's very successful, so there could have been situations like Wahachi, like Gettysburg, like Chickamauga that could have been very different. Bragg, it must be said, was angered that the loss of Brown's Ferry came so easily, and he had not forgotten his meeting with Davis where Longstreet outright said he was incompetent. It would not be long before Longstreet is given an independent assignment away from the army. Both sides will lose around 400 men to casualties, making it a fairly sharp fight. The bottom line was that the Cracker Line was now open. Grant would begin to turn his attention not to just holding on to Chattanooga, but taking a swing at Bragg. So let's head back to Louisiana and maybe check in on some action that will occur next week. Chickamauga was significant in this theater as we have mentioned in a previous episode because it would draw the attention away. Indeed, as we have just discussed with Chattanooga, there are troops converging there as Grant took charge. Banks, though, was not without his plans to invade Texas. His men, remember, were still in a position to either swing west or continue to put pressure on the Confederates in the Bayou Tesh region. Tom Green would begin skirmishing with the Union troops around Appaloosas, Louisiana, which is a little north of Lafayette. Green had found out the intentions of the Yankees due to a captured signal station. Ever the thorn in the side of the Union operations in the state, Green would set a trap for the advancing enemy at a place called Buzzard Prairie. Hitting first Godfrey Wetzel's men and then Stephen Burbridge's division of the 13th Corps. With the uncertainty of whether Taylor was ready for a strike at Franklin's advanced forces, the Union troops would pause while the Confederates withdrew. Green and Taylor decided that they had sussed out the Union Army and they were not interested in Texas and wanted to move up into Louisiana. This was compounded by the lack of movement and the fact that Franklin attempted to eliminate Green's Texas cavalry on the 21st by using a mounted column. While the attempt failed, the amount of attention the rebels were getting seemed to confirm their thinking. Taylor advanced his infantry to the area around Opelousas, and this included Texans under the Prince de Polignac, who we talked about way back in 1861. But supply lines would be a problem, and Franklin would not move. Keep in mind that as the Union troops advance deeper into enemy territory, they are going to need to draw off men to garrison the various supply lines and key points. Additionally, river levels being low would affect supplies heading to any potential army. Banks would have a very wide area in which he had objectives for, and even though Louisiana was certainly an option, he would decide that Texas would be a good target. Dana's division moved to the south and worked their way up the coast from Brownsville, while Franklin would be over land. Taylor was still convinced the strike would come at him, so he was calling for reinforcements from Texas and Arkansas, and it would be a good time to launch such an operation. But Franklin had pulled back, which was a problem. Charles Stone, acting in the absence of Banks, had had gone to oversee the operation in Texas, and would command that Franklin make a good feint north. Stephen Burbage's division would advance in accordance to this directive to a place called Bayou Bourbeau. In early November, Burbage would become concerned that his position was exposed, especially with Tom Green's cavalry who were still probing. 
Green was not idle and coming up with plans, the ever-active cavalry commander sniffing out an opportunity. Along with his cavalry regiments, three regiments of Texas infantry would arrive under Oren Roberts to add weight to an attack. Picking a specified unit of skirmishers to put pressure on the enemy while the infantry would attack from the north would be the plan. In the meantime, the cavalry would swing west and back toward Buzzard Prairie, wrapping around the left flank of the enemy. Earlier skirmishing on November 3rd would create a false alarm for Burbage, who originally reported the action as not serious. This was because early intel gathering had been just that, downplayed by other federal officers. Cavalry would alert him to the danger of enemy horsemen, however, the 60th Indiana of his command would make contact with advancing infantry. While the infantry attack paused, the cavalry would move on artillery and infantry of the 67th Indiana, exposed on the flank. It is possible the infantry formed a square, or something much like it when faced with the Texas and Arizona men. While the infantry held, the cavalry was able to get into the rear, trying to sever the line of communication. The 60th, meanwhile, was joined by the 96th Ohio and the 23rd Wisconsin in trying to stand against the Confederate foot soldiers. When the 67th was ordered to consolidate the line, the Texans took advantage, charging as the unit shifted. While there was a brief stand that included hand-to-hand fighting, many of the Hoosiers surrendered. With his line collapsing, Burbage reformed, giving the enemy the federal camp. Cadwalder Washburn would march his command and form up at Buzzard Prairie, driving away the rebel horsemen. From there, he would pressure Green, who was not able to enjoy the full spoils of war. Casualties for the fighting were mostly in prisoners. 200 Federals were killed, while 500 were captured. The Confederates would lose 125 in total casualties by comparison. While the battle showed Green to continue to prove an aggressive commander, it did not show Taylor the intentions of the Federals, nor did it evoke a reaction. We will take a break from this theater for a while, but rest assured, we will return to see how Banks is faring in his plan to invade Texas. So we will call it a day there. We talked about Sanitary Ferris, which will be ongoing fundraising events. We talked about the Battle of Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and checked in into what's going on with the Cracker Line in Tennessee, which included a sharp fight at Wahatchee. Finally, we checked back into Louisiana and Texas to see what's going on in that part of the war. Next week, we will spend some time in Tennessee, as well as head back to Virginia. As it is the Halloween season, I hope to read some real accounts of ghosts that were recorded during the war. So, definitely a change of pace, and hopefully you'll find that interesting. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.